So at Shalom, when children reach fifth grade or thereabouts, we present them with a Bible. Is that right, fifth grade? Looking right at Amber. Yes, thank you. Uh, on behalf of their parents. And it's a really nice ceremony that we have for that. You know, with parents and children promise each other that the children ask, uh, promise the parents they will ask them to read the Bible to them, and the parents promise to read the Bible with their child. And in doing that, they take a step in fulfilling one of the vows they make at baptism, placing their child's hands the Holy Scriptures. However, I tremble a bit when we present these Bibles. Because the Bible isn't all sweetness and light. It can be a scary book sometimes. When I was a camp counselor, I heard the, the Bible described as God's love letter to me. If that's true, then it is the most bizarre love letter ever written. It's true, but it's a strange kind of love letter. The Bible begins with a good creation that quickly descends into violence, culminating in the world's destruction by a flood. God's chosen family, the family of Abraham, does awful things to each other. There's slavery, repression, rape, insurrection, riots, gangland warfare, and genocide. And by the way, this isn't just confined to the Old Testament. This is all, we need to understand that this is all in the context of a God, of the love of God shown more clear, most clearly in the cross of Jesus Christ. A God who takes the violence and hatred of the world upon himself so that we could be freed to be who God made us to be. But it doesn't take away the fact that the Bible is dangerous, especially in the wrong hands. And Romans 13, 1-7 is one of the most dangerous scriptures of all. Taken out of context, especially without verses 8-14, to 14, as I've usually heard it, it can be a gift to tyrants everywhere. It can set up these authorities as having some sort of perverse divine right, like the kings of England used to claim they had. Freed from accountability to anyone except God. Such misuse encourages passivity in the face of government injustice or misconduct. And the 20th and 21st centuries are littered with the bones of the victims of this kind of misuse. After all, most German citizens, members of one Christian church or another, didn't resist the Nazis when they came to power. Most Russian citizens didn't resist Stalin and the great terror he unleashed in the 1930s. And even today, this scripture is wielded against those who dare criticize a regime. Never mind that uh, the very same supporters of one regime will forget all about this passage when one they don't like comes into power. And then, and then the, verse will turn, the scripture passage will turn to Revelation 13, which is about government as the great beast rising up out of the sea. Then that becomes the important passage. But never mind. Paul is writing so much more than these verses out of context would imply. Paul writes in the context of a revolution that has already started, but not started by human, but by human hands. Paul desires all Jesus' followers to be well-equipped citizens, not just of the nation-state they inhabit, but of the realm of God. Remember where we left off last week in chapter 12. 
Paul described what the Christian life looks like. The Christian life is lived in community, made up of many members who are differently gifted by their Lord. Paul invites the church at Rome to genuine love which goes beyond being nice, to hate evil, to cling to good, and to endure suffering. Most importantly, Paul tells them to refrain from taking revenge. Paul encourages them to meet evil with good, with mercy, and with love. This is is at the heart, this love is at the heart of what Paul is telling the church in Romans 13. Without that understanding, very easy to misuse these verses. It isn't like Paul is preaching anything new. Long before Paul, the prophet Jeremiah, rather than encouraging rebellion among the exiles in Babylon, encouraged them to seek the welfare, the shalom of the city that they were in, and to pray for it. While Isaiah encouraged Israel to return to the land, he did not encourage armed revolt to get there. Despite all the warfare in the Old Testament, despite the great suffering of the Hebrew people, There is seldom a call in the prophets to take up arms against the authorities. Paul rather encourages a tough love in response to such injustice. An in-your-face kind of love. Notice how abruptly the reading turns. After telling his hearers to render to the authorities what is due them, he says something stunning. Owe no one anything except to love one another. Owe no one anything except to love one another. For the love one who loves another fulfills the law. Another way we might put this is respect and honor. The only thing we owe anyone else is respect and honor in Christ and what respect and honor demand. There are no special debts, no particular obligations other than those that faith, love, faith, and character demand. This is the love that meets the evil done to it, even by the secular authority, with good. This is the love that affects true revolution precisely by remembering the one who brings it about, Jesus Christ. This is the love that shows love for a neighbor even and especially when it is difficult to do so. In short, this is the love that God has for the world and for sinners like us. This is that kind of enduring, deep love that brought God the Son, Jesus Christ, down for us and that led him to the cross for our salvation. This is the love that makes the impossible possible. This love is forever. This love is possible, precisely because the powers that be have a lifespan. No earthly government endures forever. No nation state endures forever. Even this weekend, as we honor our nation with thanks to God, we remember that the American experiment has a lifespan. The United States is not the kingdom of God on earth. It's not called to be a new Israel. We've certainly enjoyed great blessings by living here. But the greatness of our nation is not the ultimate goal. 
The ultimate goal is God's kingdom, which only God can and will bring about in God's good time, and which we are invited to live in, provisionally in this world and fully in the one to come. This may sound like don't hold the authorities to account, just keep your head down and shut up. That's not it. The love that faith and character in Christ demands calls us to stand up for our neighbor's well-being, following the fifth commandment. But that care for neighbor is in light of the ultimate goal, which is God's nonviolent kingdom of justice, mercy, love, and peacemaking, of shalom. Ultimate honor belongs to God. The well-equipped citizen then is equipped with love, not just for life in this world, but also life in the world to come. And there is no real love, no real peace without truth. There is also no real love without suffering. But through his life, death, and resurrection, through his own suffering, Jesus equips us with that very love. Paul talks about it here as armor of light, or maybe it could be weapons of light. This armor of light, love, mercy, peacemaking, purity of heart, forgiveness, and truth are the only, only things that the church are called to wield. We're not in the business of compelling anyone. We're not in the business of making a nation. God has already made it. We're simply in the business of walking in love as sinners who know they themselves are loved, who know they themselves have been saved, who know they themselves are called to live in an alternate community, the community of the kingdom of God. So on this 4th of July weekend, God help us to remember the most important thing, that God's kingdom is forever. We know what time it is. Let's live in God's saving love and grace today. Amen.